going to go downstairs. It's totally up to you, but I wanted to uh, make the offering. I think we got someone ready back there for you, but I'll, I wanted to give that offering to you so I don't have to create a bunch of problems at lunch this afternoon. But anyway, let's pray and let's get started with our uh, sermon. Dear Lord, we just thank you so much for this morning, and we just thank you for all you've done. We just pray you'd be with us as we get letter, ready to prepare on this text and see how it applies to us and what it means and what we need to do with our lives. Lord, we just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been going through 1 Corinthians, and uh, as we've been going through 1 Corinthians, last week we kind of hit a particular subject, right? Paul was kind of going through one subject and kind of another. The occasional nature of the document, there's different issues he's working with. And last week we talked a lot about divorce and remarriage. And now we're going to continue on with talking about some more issues that Paul is dealing with here in chapter 7. J. Edward Ellis of Baylor University wrote, this passage seems at first glance to take a rather dim view of sex and marriage, seeing that at best necessary evil for unable to control themselves. We had talked about that about last week, and as we go on continuing about last week, it says, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. I mentioned this last week, when we think about the context of the passage, while we're not getting to verse 26 this morning, we think about this passage in the light of the present distress he's going through. He's giving them particular instructions that seem to apply to the difficulties they are having. So, let's look at these difficulties, this next one this morning. It says in verse 17, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. So he uses this term, the Lord has assigned, or might, some translations might be called to him. This might mean social class. It might be a reference to the social class. So he's saying, if you've been called to this particular social class, you're, you should endeavor, to, not endeavor to stay there, but you should be content and willing to say, stay there if that's where you are. We'll talk more about that as we go. And then he says, this is my rule in all the churches this creates a very interesting problem, if you ask me. Not because of this particular passage. We know that this is the rule in all the churches. But what it might mean is, well, does that mean sometimes he gives rules or he says things that are only for that particular church and not for others? Boy, that would seem interesting and interesting to deal with and hard to kind of determine what one might be another. And this is a bit of a side, but I'll give you an example. For example, when you get in the debate on, and, on women being preachers and leaders in the church and how that all works, in 1 Corinthians, you'll get into the part where it talks about women to be silent. It talks about Timothy and in Corinth. So is, when he's talking about it in 1 Corinthians, is he saying, this is just for your church? Or is he saying, this is for all churches? See, this is the difficulty. This is one of the problems we could have. And so he, but in this particular case, I'm not going to solve all problems at all times. I'm just going to solve, I may not solve any, but I'm just going to try to solve a few. But in that case, you can see the, the difficulty there. The, the, the argument from culture, like he's arguing this particular case, this is a particular problem, and I'm doing this in a particular way. Because he seems to contrast that and saying, this is the rule in all the churches. So in this case, it's for everyone. So what are these things he wants everyone to do? It says, was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. 
So you say, okay, remove the marks of circumcision. What does this mean? So if you're a Jew and you've been circumcised, there was actually a surgery you could have. It was called a epispasm, I believe, and it was meant to disguise circumcision. So if you think about the Roman society, if you know much about Roman history, there was just a lot of times of like public nudity, like you go to the baths and the showers and various places. So when I was over traveling in Israel, Egypt, and Jordan, we would like went to like a Roman restroom, and they're like, yep, this is it. It's just sort of wide open, right? There's like a lot of not a privacy. This is just kind of how they did it back then. And in Roman society, circumcision was considered indecent. It was inappropriate to be in a public place and be circumcised. So you might have this surgery in order to fix it, in order to cover it. And so this is why Paul addresses this issue. What do we do? We've been circumcised. Should we try to undo it in some way, at least cosmetically? And he is saying, no, stay as you are. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. So you should stay as you are. If you're not circumcised, you stay that way. If you are circumcised, you stay that way as well. Because there was a lot of social pressure on them to hide it, but there was also pressure from the Jews. If anyone was a Jew, what would they want you to do? They would likely be pressuring you to get circumcised. So there was this argument going back and forth and how to handle it. We go on to verse 19. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commands of God. So at first read, this seems pretty simple. Okay, gotcha. Circumcision is not important. What's really important is keeping the commands of God. (sighs) Nothing's ever simple, is it? Nothing's ever simple. Think with me for a second about this keeping the commands of God. What commands is he talking about? The commands of God. Well, maybe, when I first read this, this is what I think. Maybe he's talking about keeping the New Testament commands. Well, the New Testament commands didn't exactly exist, right? There wasn't really a New Testament. When we read 1 Timothy, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Where does that refer to? It refers to the Old Testament. So we're supposed to keep the commands of God. Okay, so maybe this is a reference to the Old Testament Scripture. Okay. And actually, that's, that's kind of what everyone, most people kind of agree in some way. So you go, wait, wait, wait. Circumcision doesn't matter, even though it mattered in the Old Testament. And now you're telling me to keep the Old Testament laws. So which is it? Which is it? So, I've probably told this story before. I'm almost sure I've told it in the Wednesday night men's class. I took a class in seminary called Law and Grace. And I was like, what in the world is an entire class on Law and Grace about? This seems silly. As a matter of fact, it seems so silly, I was not going to take it until another student who had been in the class said, Joel, Joel, you've got to take the class. It's really interesting. It's this really important thing. You've got you to take it. So I take it. My professor, Dr. Meyer, was very good, very interesting very informative guy, and he introduced me to this problem of law and grace, or law and gospel. As a matter of fact, there's a book that I've read, I read it a while ago, it was called Five Views 
on law and gospel. Did you even know there were two views on law and gospel, much less five? So, are Christians required to obey the law, Old Testament law? Are Christians required to obey the Old Testament law? The first question, the first way to answer it is yes. And it's the theonomic or non-theonomic view. And it says, yes, you're required to obey the Old Testament law. So the theonomic view says this. Yes, we're required to obey the Old Testament law. And not only are we supposed to obey the moral part of the law, like the Ten Commandments, we're also supposed to obey the civil law, which means every government in the world ever set up should be set up like the government that was in Israel. That law is for us. Now, the ceremonial part of the law, meaning the, the things related to sacrifices that all prefigure Christ, everyone, you know, basically everybody agrees those have passed, reading Hebrews and so on and so forth. Okay, we're not doing sacrifices anymore. But the civil law, we should have laws like they did back then. So when your children disobey you, what does it say in the Old Testament you should do? You should stone them. So they would agree, you should be stoned. Children, watch out for anyone that takes this particular view. Now, this is not a common view. I don't know if I even know anyone personally that takes this view, but they would take it. Now, the non-theonomic view takes a similar, though much simpler view. It says, yes, we're supposed to obey the Old Testament, but not like so much of it. We're just supposed to obey the moral law, which they would define the moral law as the Ten Commandments. So we don't do the civil law, we don't do the ceremonial law, but we do do the Ten Commandments. So there was a guy in the five views of all gospel when addressing this issue, he says, his name's Westerholm, he says, Westerholm falls, in, or he's critiquing Westerholm, Westerholm falls into the trap of making his Paul disagree with Paul, the Paul who said, keeping God's commandments is what counts, 1 Corinthians 7, 19. He is arguing, listen, you're telling me that we don't need to keep the Old Testament law, but you are arguing against Paul himself because he says in 1 Corinthians 7.19 that we're supposed to. In response to Westerholm's presentation of Paul's sharp contrast between law and faith, Ben Gimmerin raises 1 Corinthians 7.19 as a proof that Paul adhered to the abiding validity of the Mosaic law. The question that must be raised is whether the phrase God's commandments actually refers to the Mosaic commandments. If so, then Westerholm is guilty as charged, making Paul disagree with himself. Yet Paul does not always use the term to refer to the Mosaic law. So the guy said, he admits, he says, yeah, you're, you're right. I mean, if this is a reference to the Mosaic law, then we need to fulfill it. So if we only need to be, obey the moral law and we have to obey the Ten Commandments, we don't have much of a problem with those. But there's actually one that I bet none of you keep, or me for that matter, and that is the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. The Sabbath is on Saturday. Let's say you even say, okay, well, it was moved to Sunday. We'll go with Sabbath being on Sunday. So do you never work on Sunday? Do you never work on Sunday? You say, well, I don't do my official job. Okay. What about this? Do you mow the lawn ever on Sunday? Do you do your household? Have you read the requirements for obeying the Sabbath? Because if you have, I bet you're not keeping them. And then when all of us go out to eat or some of us go out to eat for lunch somewhere afterwards and we have someone working for us to serve us our meals 
Are we not saying the very fact that we are willing to pay the money to serve us, we think it's okay to work on the Sabbath? That's why there are some very small towns, they still exist somewhere in some places, that shut everything down on Sunday because they are trying really hard to have no work go on on Sunday. I don't know if they're fully successful or not, but I know here we are not. We work, we work on Sunday. We break that all the time. So there's some other views. Those are the first two views. Maybe we take the dispensational slash modified Lutheran slash gracious guidance, which I have no idea what that means, which basically says, no, we do not obey the Old Testament law at all in any way. Uh, in direct rules. I mean, we, we follow the principles, but we do not follow any of the rules, whether it's the Ten Commandments or not. Now, of course, nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated, right? All but the Sabbath. The other nine are repeated. So saying you obey the Ten Commandments isn't, is mostly right because they're all going to be repeated but one. So let's talk about some of the problems we have in interpreting this passage. First of all, number one, it sounds self-contradictory, doesn't it? He says... Circumcision doesn't matter. And then he says, keep the commandments, which probably refer to the Old Testament. Well, which is it, right? Second, the terms used to point to it being the Old Testament law. The terminology used, I mean, almost everybody agrees it's probably the law. Those who argue it's not a reference to the Old Testament law probably are just trying really hard to make it fit their theology, right? Which we do all the time, but it's probably a reference to the Old Testament law. The words are incomplete. They're elliptical. Okay? It's a fancy word that you learn in Greek class and then you forget later on. They're elliptical, which means this. Have you ever read a sentence that like takes out part of the words, like maybe takes out all the prepositions or the, the, the conjunctions or whatever, and you, you read it and you still can figure it out, right? You can still figure it out. We'll drop words, and this is why this passage is so difficult. He says this little phrase. It's so incredibly confusing to us but likely they were filling in the blanks and it was obvious to them. All right, it was obvious to them. So some translations, because they think it's elliptical, actually add, will add a bunch of words of which they think belong. And they may be right, they may be not, but it's difficult because it's elliptical. Number four, this is the only time he speaks of it in 1 Corinthians. He never mentions the law again, specifically. So makes it really difficult to interpret. The commands of God. So, it re refers to part of the law, the moral and civil. We talked about this. It refers to all of the law. So, if it refers to all of the law, here's one option. Only the Jews obey it. So he's saying keep the commandments. And he doesn't break it up into this part and this part because some people argue that, and I would agree. When you start cutting up the Old Testament rules into categories, like why do we have a ceremonial, civil, and a moral? Probably because some theologian thought it was a good idea because these passages were so incredibly confusing and we couldn't figure them out. We just started cutting up into categories and kept the parts that we thought made sense and threw the parts out we didn't. And I understand. I mean, it's incredibly difficult. So one guy goes in and he says, you know, I think this is a command to obey the whole law, but only Jews should do it. I don't think that makes a ton of sense. I'm not going to argue against it too much because I don't. But that's one way people have tried to, to understand it. The next one is no one obeys it. No one is supposed to obey the law. So it refers to the whole law, 
It's talking about the whole Testament law, but actually no one obeys it. So, I brought my purple emoji back, and so I'm going to try to explain what I think this is referring to. to the commandments of God. I don't think it refers to the part of the law because it diminishes the reference. When you start cutting up the law into pieces, it gets very, very messy, and it gets very hard to know which part of the law you're supposed to keep and which part of you're not. And in practice, the fact we never actually obey the tenth command, one of the Ten Commandments anyway, we must, you know, I, I don't think it's one of the commandments, all right? I don't think we should break it up. It diminishes the reference to the law. That's what I'm explaining there. Verse number two, it refers to all of the law. This is what I agree with. It is a reference, it references the whole law, but is not a command to obey it. Let me say that again. It is a reference to the whole law, and the way we read it makes it sound like we're supposed to obey it, but I'm arguing that maybe that is not what it's saying. So, they surely knew what he was talking about. When Paul ever refers to the law, he never uses it as primary arguments, always one of his secondary arguments. It's never the primary reason we should do something. Paul talks about freedom from the law a number of times. So when we get into food laws later on in Corinthians, what does he say about food later? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Just food. Maybe there, it matters based on the connection that it makes, but otherwise it doesn't matter. And circumcision, what does he say about it? It doesn't matter. This is as quoted by a guy named Sanders. This is one of the most amazing sentences that Paul ever wrote because it's so difficult to understand. And I'm arguing this. When it says, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God, he's saying this. Circumcision and uncircumcision don't matter. We know that. I already wrote that to you one time. And listen, if you're going to think circumcision matters, you might as well keep the whole law. You might as well keep the whole law. If you're going to say that you need to be circumcised, you should be keeping the whole thing. Why would you go and say, we still need to have circumcision for today, and then go say, yeah, but we don't obey that other stuff. So when he says, we know, I've told you before, that circumcision and uncircumcision don't matter. Keeping God's commandments are what really matter. And if you're going to keep God's, really, keep God's commandments and that really matters to you, then what does that mean? You should be keeping all of the law and including circumcision and everything. But we know circumcision shouldn't be kept, therefore we shouldn't obey the whole thing. Did I properly confuse absolutely everyone on how that works? He's saying, I want you to realize that if circumcision was actually required, what you should be doing is keeping the entire law. You cannot pick and choose. That's my argument for what this means. And the reason it's so partly so unclear is because of the elliptical nature of it and it's missing words. Got it? Let me tell you why this can become important. A Christian's relationship to the law has a few ramifications. The one we've already talked about. If you think the law is for us and you somehow break it up into the moral law, you probably should not go out to eat after church today. Because I would say that's a fairly hypocritical act to go do that. Probably shouldn't mow your lawn. 
You should freshen up on your Old Testament to figure out what you should and should not do. Second is this. We live under grace, not under law. How does law work? When you're bad, you get punished the appropriate amount of punishment. So when Israel was bad, what happened to them? Boom, they got punished. When Israel was good, what happened to them? They were blessing. Matter of fact, he promised them victory over their enemies. He promised them wealth, right? That's why the Old Testament fits so well with the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. All I've got to do is tell you a story in the Old Testament in which they obeyed God, and then what happens to them? Everything goes well. God comes in and makes everything happy. Then I tell you the story about Peter and Paul and go, oh, yeah, that's right. They, died. they got killed. Oops. Boy, that health, wealth, and prosperity doesn't work quite as well in the New Testament now, does it? But in the Old Testament, they lived under law. So do we live under law or the principle of law in any way? I do not think so. I do not think so. And some people actually say, well, why we don't live under the commands of the law, we live under the principle of law. We are saved by grace, but we live under law. We are saved by grace and we live under the law. I think we are saved by grace and we live by grace. We do not live under the principle of law at all anymore. And this can color your interpretations of other passages and how we view things that are happening to us. When someone sins and you say, well, if someone sinned a lot, what should happen? If I'm living by law, someone sins a lot, they should get punished. And if someone's good and they does right, they should be blessed. Nothing bad should happen to them. I assume all of you have lived long enough to know that all the good people in your life that do the right things don't necessarily have all the best blessings in their life. Do not think we live under law. I think we live by grace. We go on to verse 20. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Paul continues this. You, the circumcision is the first issue. Remain in the position you were called. Verse 21. This is where it also gets hard for us. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom... Avail yourself the opportunity. Slavery in the first century is hard for us to come to grips with. It's very difficult. Very difficult. Slaveholders, slaveholders in the first century viewed their slaves as like an extension of their bodies. Okay, an extension of their bodies. Therefore, sexual immorality with slaves was not even considered sexual immorality. It wasn't like sleeping with other people. They were yours. They were yours. And they were a part of you. For he who is called in the Lord as a slave is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free called a slave of Christ. You know, I, I read about a guy named Felix. Felix had this slave. He, he kept running away all the time. This is in the 5th century AD. So this is long past this, early Christianity. Felix was a Christian. The slave kept running away. And so he gave, he had special maid. This is how we know. He had special maid 
a giant metal collar. Forget what the material. And it said on it something like, I am the slave of Felix. Return me to him. You know what else he put on there? A cross. Put on a cross. So often when we as Christians deal with slavery in the first century, we try to minimize it. We try to say it didn't happen. We try to say it wasn't there. It was there. It was there from the very start. It was in, totally ingrained in the culture. That is how, that's what you did. I'm going to try to give an example that's bad. Okay, this is a bad example. I can't think of a better one. Let's say one day we find out that playing football takes 10 years off your life. Don't know if it does. I'm just making this up. But we kind of get the illustration. There's been a lot of hubbub about it, movies made about it. Let's just say we find out someday for sure playing football takes 10 years off your life. If you play professional football, it takes 15 years off your life. If you play just high school football and you end after your senior year, it only takes five years off your life. I'm making this up, right? I don't know if this is true. Let's say it does. You're like, parents, years from now, that know this information, they might look back at us. I played high school football, right? Loved it. My parents were there. It was awesome. And they will look back at people like my parents, and they'll say, barbarians. They were killing their children and cheering them in the stands all the way. May not, may not look good for us. Looking, we don't know. My parents didn't. I mean, I don't, I don't even know if it's true. But I, if it is true, my parents did not know they were taking years off my life. It, you know, right? Like, they, they were loving. They cared about me. They wanted the best for me. So if someone in the future would call back and say, my parents are barbaric, they're wrong. They're wrong. My parents were not barbaric. They cared about me and wanted the best for me, even if football would, was a bad decision, and I didn't know it. And I would say, when I look back in the first century, we can try to say it didn't happen, or we can try to say it wasn't there, or we can try to whitewash it and pretend it was, whitewash it's a bad term, it's got a lot of meanings, I didn't mean to in that way, sometimes mean it. We can try to push it away and say it didn't happen. It happened. And the people that lived back then would not have known, they wouldn't have even have thought, boy, I'm doing a terrible thing. I'm doing a terrible thing. But I would also argue that the New Testament restrictions on how to treat slavery and how to conduct yourself to slaves and the views of slavery was a change to the culture of their day, made it much, much better on slavery. Started treating slaves more like people. So they were still a slave. They, were still, they still had to serve that person for their life. It could be sold and all that. But the way you're supposed to treat your slave was a massive step forward. And so I see that as a positive I really want to have really mean things to say about the people back then, but you know, I was not there. I do not know what it was like. And maybe if I was born at that time, I wouldn't even consider myself when I made a big metal thing to go around someone's neck as doing something bad. I mean, I may not even have thought that was mean, even though today I think of it and I go, oh boy, that's rough. Oh boy, that's rough. So what does he tell the slaves to do? Well, he did say in verse 21, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself to it. So he's like, well, if you have the opportunity to become free, to work yourself free or whatever, you should. But we go to verse 22. It says, for he was called in the Lord as a slave, as a freed man of the Lord. So he says, 
Though you may live as a slave in this world, you are free in God. Likewise, he who was free when he was called is a slave to Christ. And he says, those of you who are not slaves that are actually free, you are slaves in Christ. And I would argue that this conduct of how the people were supposed to treat one another within the church was revolutionary. In the church, they were equal. They were all people. They were all people, and they were on an equal playing field. And this would have been a total new way of handling things. A totally new way. Sometimes in church today, we still struggle with, not, we don't, you know, we don't have slaves, but we, we sometimes actually still sometimes have social classes, right? I mean, in the church at some point, we sold pews, and the first pew is more expensive, the second pew is less expensive, so on and so forth. We couldn't get away from it. We couldn't get away from it. We sometimes stratify ourselves, and the church was so unique. They said, here, here is where it does not matter how wealthy you are, it doesn't matter what class you're in, we are all equal in Christ. Go on to verse 23. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. We are supposed to serve God. We are not supposed to men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain with God. See, another interesting thing, when we have slavery and what they're going through and whatnot, does he say revolt? Revolt? He doesn't say revolt, does he? He says remain remain. You know, we can't control our circumstances, can we? We can't control them. We can't control who gets sick. We can't control who gets healthy. We can't, sometimes we have a person that we fall in love with and we can't control that they don't like us back. And we can't control it. There are so many circumstances in our life in which we can't control And you know what? The slaves of that time, they couldn't control it. They couldn't control it. So oftentimes, we think we need to think less about changing our circumstances. Though it does say, I mean, if you can get free, you should, right? I'm not not saying it doesn't say you shouldn't. But there are times when it is out of our control. We cannot change the world. We cannot change the people. We cannot change our spouse. They are acting how they are. And what do we say? What does he say? We need to learn to be content. Because where is our contentment found? And how nice the people around us and our health and our health of our family and how well our children are turning out. No. Our happiness is found in Christ. When there are difficult circumstances going around us and we can't control them and we can't stop them and we can't do anything about them, we should be able to say, it is well. It is well, my soul. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you so much for this morning. As we consider what was going on and, and them considering the present distress and trying to deal with it and, and whether they should stay as they are. And Lord, while we have such smaller problems, I just pray you would give us that same contentment. That same desire to say in our hearts, It is well. It is well. And while we're striving to do better, we know we can't change everything. No, we don't understand everything that goes on and why you allow everything to happen. Lord, I just pray. I just pray that we would have peace. 
that we would find our contentment in you and the place we are. We just pray this in Jesus' name.